Appreciate that. Well, good morning, guys. We're going to continue through the book of Acts this morning. And so if you don't have a Bible, I think we've got some people that are willing to hand you one. And you know, as a community of believers, when we're together like this, we are privileged to have the freedom to have a Bible. You know, back when the time that we're studying here in the book of Acts, they didn't have that. They, they, you know, one person maybe had a scroll or at least access to a scroll of God's word at that time, which was what we call the Old Testament. And so the privilege that we get to have to go through his word and have the freedom, whether in hand or like me right here on a smart, smart tablet, is just an amazing privilege. So I want you to be aware of that. That's really a blessing. So... Let's just ask the Lord to come and, and give a blessing to his word. In the sense that, Lord, you're living, you're here among us. We've, we've worshipped you, we've sought after you. And, Lord, as a family, we, we get to uh, have rest in you. And, Lord, as we're before your spoken word to us on these, these pages, we ask that you would anoint them and give them life that go beyond mere ascent by our, our minds that go deep into our hearts and actually transform us by the power of your voice. I think of Psalm 29 that says your voice is so powerful and it can birth, it can tear down, it can remove, it can restore. And Lord, your voice is powerful. So we ask that you give life to the verses that were before and change us and change our minds, but more importantly, make us like yourself. Because, Dad, we need to look like you. Because you birthed us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's go to Acts chapter 11. And we'll be looking at verses 27 through 30. And hopefully we've had some issue this morning with our slide projection, so we'll see how we come. Let's go ahead and look at that. Wow, nice job on that. Thanks, guys, for working on that. Our, by the way, sometimes we don't recognize our sound team or our, uh, what do we call it, video teams are not the right word. What's the right word for that? Media. Media, there's the word. Give you guys a hand for them, would you? Appreciate that. Thanks. So let's read God's word here. And actually, I kind of ended up on verse 26 there. Uh, where Nick ended up last week. And in Antioch, which is the city we're going to be going and looking at, the disciples were first called Christians, which was derisional because in Antioch, Christians were not, or disciples were not looked as being very favorable. In fact, to become a disciple was considered really turning your back on what was the known world at that time. But now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius, as Luke is saying here, that this was fulfilled. He's the uh, historian writer of this, as he's writing it uh, a few years later. And so the disciples, once they heard this word of Agabus, determined everyone according to to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas 
and Saul. Now, this brief story, if we miss some of the the importance of it, can just pass us by. But we see something dramatic happening here that involves hundreds of people in Antioch who are now believers, disciples, gathering together dried food and money and money, and then sending it to a group of people down in Jerusalem, 300 miles south, to Jerusalem, like from here to, let's say, Los Angeles. And that took 15 days. So they're sending this, this hundreds of people within Antioch, sending down money and food to a group of people in Jerusalem, hundreds and hundreds more, who were not really in need yet. Now think about that. He's prophesying, he's foretelling something is going to happen that's going to be a famine throughout the known world at that time, and especially in Judea. And so they respond to that, send it down just in time as the famine really begins to take place. That is an amazing story. Now think about that. It would be as if us gathered together all this stuff by the word of one person and sent it down to Los Angeles to people down there for help. That's pretty amazing. Now, looking behind the scenes through other scriptures, we realize that as Agabus stood up and had this prophecy, it was being determined by other prophets that were with him as well as other people whether this word was true or not. And so they discerned that it was. And so this did happen. And we're going to focus this morning on this area of prophets and prophecy because it is something that is a dominant theme throughout all of Scripture, but sometimes we don't take the time to look at it. And what can be problematic in that is how prophets and prophecy work within a local group of people like ourselves here or within our city. And simply because most of the time scripture doesn't have much to say about how worship services happen and how they, you know, what goes on. In other words, how long do you have the message? When do you put music? How much? How much do you sing? How much do you raise your hands? How much do you just sit? There's the methodology or how we practice worship really isn't seen very clearly in the scriptures, which I think is intentional by the Lord. And so, in the context of church services, it's really important that as we're going through this, that it it brings up fears, it brings up concerns, and it also brings up questions of which we all have different opinions and thoughts on. And that's okay. You will have different thoughts and opinions. And my goal here this morning is to really be less subjective and more objective by going through a lot of verses and a lot of scriptures that concern prophets and prophecy and how that might work within our local body now, how it worked then, and some of the problems that come up with this. So I think it's interesting that when we look at the few verses that kind of pull back the curtain as to how services and worship services went in the early times, especially 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14, The main three things that Paul covers in there is the Lord's Supper, communion, which we practice here, and also prophecy and prophets. In fact, it talks about prophecy being used to reveal the secrets of our hearts and for people coming in who don't know the Lord, 
for their secrets of their hearts are revealed, they fall down and say, truly, God is among you. So that's an interesting viewpoint that in, when we do see something unveiled, it really speaks about this area that we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's take a look at first how God has set up prophets and prophecy within Scripture. And let's go to the next verse, which is in Ephesians which we covered uh, months and months back when we were going through the book of Ephesians, so it's good to look back on this. And Paul is, is sharing with us how Christ himself, this is Ephesians four eleven through 12, where Christ himself gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The body of Christ meaning us as people. We're a living part of his body with Christ being the head, and he has given certain individuals the gifting or the office to help build us up. Let's go to the next slide where Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 through 28. And he says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God is placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Seemingly, objectively looking at this, that there is an order of, I wouldn't say prominence, but importance in how God builds his body up. And notice he says apostles, and then second, prophets, and third would be teachers and or pastors. That's an interesting note. I'll just let that one lie. How's that? We see in the book of Acts here that we've seen an evangelist like Philip. We've seen apostles like Peter. And now we're looking at prophets like Agabus in this case. And so it's vital that we open our hearts and minds to the objectivity of the scripture and let God's word interpret us. So let's look at some more passages in Scripture, especially in the book of Acts, that describes activities of prophets. And let's look at the first one here in Acts 13, 1 through 2, which we'll get to in a few weeks or months, depending on how slow we go through it. Now in the church at Antioch, again, we're back in Antioch in this passage, there were prophets and teachers. Now, notice he differentiates between prophets and teachers. Many times in, in many commentaries... Uh, prophecy and prophets is really just compared to inspired teaching. I would disagree objectively because of what the scriptures say. Like here, for instance, he differentiates between prophets and teachers, and he names Barnabas, Simon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menian, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were all worshiping together the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them, which transforms to Barnabas and Saul going on missionary journeys all throughout the known world of that time. So it's interesting seeing this practice as they're worshiping, there's prophets and teachers there, and somewhere, somehow, someone has a word from the Lord that says it's time to separate Barnabas and Saul for the work that they're supposed to do. They needed some revelation from the Lord as they were worshiping and fasting before him. God gives that direction. Let's look at the next slide. This is out of Acts 
13, 1 and 2, where it says, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. It's interesting with Silas here that he actually joins Paul on his second and third missionary journey, preaching the word of God. And also, uh, Paul mentions him in the book of First and Second Thessalonians as co-writing that book with him. So in essence, Silas helps co-write some of the scripture as being a prophet. Interesting. And then Acts 21.8, it says, as they were leaving the next day, meaning Paul and I think uh, Barnabas at that time, we reached, or actually, uh, I think it was Luke in this case, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, which goes back to the story when they had to have organization and administration of feeding the poor and the helpless. They set up seven to oversee that, and Philip was one of them. And it says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And then he goes on with the story. And I'm going, wait a minute. What does this mean, four unmarried daughters who prophesied? It's like it begs a lot of questions, doesn't it? Have you ever read the scripture, and and you're looking at it, and then the story goes on, and you're going, no, no, let's, let's go back. I want some more info. I want to know what's going on here. What, what does that look like? How does that go? Remember something. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we're talking about Luke, in this case, writing on scrolls of paper which were valuable and limited space. So he would only mention the things that had some importance and sometimes had to abbreviate situations and move on to the more important things that were valuable to the larger group in, in, in that was going to read this, as well as us who read it now. But the fact that Luke writes this about Philip and his daughters, it's not that it's not important, but I think it's more, in my opinion, more a normal fabric of the community of believers that he was a part of, that this went on. In fact, let, remember back in Acts 2 when we were reading about the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church for the first time in great power. And Peter stands up to interpret what's going on, and he says this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel when he said that God, through Joel, the prophet, said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, all humankind, and your young men shall dream dreams, your old men will see visions, or I think it's old men see visions anyway. The point is you can read it for yourself and determine how that goes. But he says, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Interesting, isn't that? And really, what's going on here is that instead of like it had been in the past, where mostly just in Israel were there prophets and prophesying going on, but God was simply saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all humankind and so that there will be more rather than less of the manifestation of my spirit and my presence through individuals. And that means worldwide. And that should be encouraging to us. So let's look at the next slide, which is Peter in talking about prophecy and the end result. And remember, and we'll look at this a little later, but understand the fact that prophecy in general and prophets is to point to a deeper relationship with the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself. And that is really the object. And that's an objective view that's very, very crucial and needs to be understood within this process. 
And notice what Peter says here. He says, for you are, this is 1 Peter 1, 9 through 12, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, salvation in this case means to be rescued from imminent danger. And in this case, it's called the danger of eternal separation from God forever and ever and to be living in torment. Plain and simple. But that's what the scriptures are talking about here. And so as Peter is saying here, he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets, which in this case would be the old, what we call the Old Testament, as they prophesied about the Messiah, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that will follow. Now, understand what's going on here. As the prophets were receiving these revelations from God about his Messiah, about his Savior, the one who was going to come, they were looking intently as they were writing this down and saying, well, what's going on here? When's this going to happen? How's it going to look? What's it going to look like? There were men and women like us. What's going on here? But they didn't get the whole picture. It was hard. It was, it was clouded. And so they just had to write and trust and say, well, this is what's going to happen, even though we're not really clear about it either. Isn't that interesting? It was revealed to them, Peter goes on to say, that they were not serving themselves, but you. And he's speaking to us in the, under the new covenant. They were speaking to us when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. And so when we think of prophets and prophecy, it all points to a person and to glorify that person. But it also reveals more of his personhood so that we're changed by that. And that's the object of prophets and prophecy. Let's go to the next slide. This is the idea of biblical prophecy in general. And I'm using broad strokes because in 45 minutes, you can't even begin to exhaust this issue that is so dominant throughout the theme of Scripture. So we're going to do broad looks at this, and hopefully this will just generate more interest for you to study and look. But the idea of biblical prophecy can be summed up as this. We have the seer and speaker of God. A seer meaning simply says that they see and that they hear God speaking. So prophecy can be defined in the scriptures as seeing and hearing what cannot be known naturally. That's important. Because rather than intellectual pursuit of the of this of the intellectual pursuit of knowledge in this area and idea of prophets, prophecy really was more a visceral experience of the supernatural God in the life of his people. Think about this. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus uh, one night about being born again, he used spiritual imagery. He talked about the spirit like wind coming upon and birthing. You can't see the wind. All you do is feel the effects. And Nicodemus was like, I just don't understand this. It's, naturally, I can't, with my mere knowledge, I cannot grab a hold of that. And so for those of us in this room who have received Christ and have been born again by the Spirit of God, something 
the Spirit Himself, the Lord God Himself, came and entered you and changed you and began to transform you. It wasn't that you decided to do this. It wasn't that you thought it would be a good idea to follow God. God convinced you of Himself and the need to be rescued. And you came to Him. And you've grown to know Him as a father, as a friend, as your Lord, as your God, as your comforter. That doesn't come from mere mental thinking about it, but it's through a revelation of the personhood of God. And so when we're looking at this, the fact of seeing things that cannot be intellectually gotten, that can be insulting to us, and that can be difficult. However, it is the objective way of the word. Let's look at... Now, the next point here, which would be prophetical inspiration. And sometimes this is a hard thing to look at and difficult to, to grapple. But this is really important. As we read about prophets and prophecy throughout Scripture, the inspiration of prophecy never suppresses the human consciousness. But rather, the recipient is in full possession of his conscience and is able afterwards to give a clear account of what happened. Now, that's different than false prophets that were spoken of in the Word, where they would just go into these crazy wild things, gash themselves, mark themselves up, and that they were in these trances where they didn't know what was going on. That's not true biblical prophecy. It's interesting. That's really important. The individuality of the prophet is not eliminated by divine inspiration. The individuality of the person cooperates in the form of shaping what has been seen and heard from God. So in in accordance with the natural makeup of the prophet or prophetess and with the contents of the message, the mental condition of the recipient, prophet or prophetess, the person, may give the word in intense excitement or be very calm in it, depending on the person's personality makeup and who they are. God doesn't suppress that in prophecy. And I think that's an important aspect of this. The expression of God's word is determined by his own personal talents or her own personal talents and gifts and also by their experiences. And you can see these differences as you read the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel. Wildly different displays of the prophetic word. All according to the person's personality. And that's really important. Another aspect is going down, and I'm not going to go through all of these things, but relation to dreams, and we can see this in the scripture, but the freedom of inspiration is important. That simply means that God chooses who he wants to give his word, to put it simply. And it can be any age, sex, the spirit, the spirit of God coming is not confined to any priestly class or organization. Now, sometimes we see, in in the Old Testament especially, prophets gathering others in what's called the school of prophets and teaching and training. And then one or another would be controlled by the Spirit to speak God's word. But many other times, God would just choose people who were not normally ready for it. Such in the case would be like Amos. Because Amos appeals excessively that he didn't choose being a prophet. 
and he wasn't part of a prophetic school. In fact, I'm, if it's not up on one of the slides, but let's, if, if in your Bibles, if you can find Amos there. Amos chapter 7. And I just love the humanity. I love the humanity that's expressed through God's people. Amos 7, 14. And it says that Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. In other words, I wasn't a professional prophet. Nor was I a son of a prophet. But I was a sheep herder and a tender of sycamore fruit trees. And then the Lord took me as I followed the flock. The Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Really, he was minding his own business being a shepherd and a fruit grower. And God came upon him and said, I want you to go tell my word to my people Israel. Very interesting, isn't it? I love the humanity in that. That's so, so good. So, as we find prophets who are sometimes under the priestly order, uh, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there's equally numbers of those who never belong to that. And further, even more, is the age. Look at Samuel. Samuel's a young boy, kind of the age of that little girl there that's going right there. I mean, honestly, and God calls Samuel and says, I want you to be my prophet to the nation. And Samuel, like any young boy, is really confused by this. He's going, what's going on? What, what is this call? In fact, God has to speak to him three to four times to get his attention. And finally, he goes to, well, anyway, I won't go too far into the story. The point being is that he's a young man. He's a child. How many times have you, in fact, God says in his word, he says, by the mouth of babes, God's wisdom is going to be shown. I think it's so wonderful that, that God doesn't choose by class or socioeconomic con, uh, distinctions, but rather chooses because he just chooses. And that means every one of us are valid, open vessels with God can speak through and move through. So I think that, that, that should be very encouraging. Another thing that's important to understand is that prophets did not always speak in an inspired state. Think about that. Sometimes they spoke in error, but were not considered false prophets. That's an important distinction. Why is that? Because a prevailing belief system says that if you prophesy, you better be 100% correct. Otherwise, you're a false prophet. But really, when you look deeper into the scriptures about false prophets, false prophets were signified by two distinctiveness. One, that they tried to convince God's people to move away from the living God to something else and to someone else. That's very, very important. And that they were after their own gain. They were out for profit, pun intended. Okay, all right, I know. That was weak. That was a weak word. I got it. But really, that was the two distinctive things. Balaam and tried to turn the people of God away from the living God and wanted money for it. And that's spoken, you can read about Balaam in Jude, you can read about him in Peter, you can read about him in, in the book of Numbers. Very distinctive. But in this case, 
Let's look at one, a couple of instances where uh, prophets were incorrect. Let's look at Nathan and David. Nathan, David comes, King David at that time wants to build the temple of the Lord because he says, you know, God's ark is only in this little building. I want to build this temple. And Nathan, who's the prophet at that time for David, says, oh yeah, go for it. God's with you. He walks away, goes to bed, and that night the Lord tells him, Nathan, that wasn't right. I don't, have, I don't want him to build. I want his son to build and gives him this whole incredible prophecy to give to David, which he goes back and does. Another instance would be Jonah. How many of you are familiar with Jonah in here? Okay, give me your hands, because some people aren't. All right. Those who aren't, read the book of Jonah. <laughs> I know, that sounds bad. Anyway, Jonah, Jonah was an interesting guy. God tells him, I want you to go to Nineveh and proclaim my word. Jonah says, no way, I ain't going in there. And he goes totally the opposite way. God catches him. I'm just summarizing the book here. Catches him, throws him to the belly of a fish, of which he repents. The fish spits him out on the coast near Nineveh. He walks into Nineveh and totally must be a real sight, considering the fact he'd been in the belly of a fish for three days you know, the digestive juices and everything covered with slime and all white and everything from the juices and everything. And he says, as he walks through the streets of Nineveh, a pretty large city, by the way, and he's saying, in 40 days, you're toast. This place is going to be destroyed. You're going to be destroyed. God's going to destroy you because you're wicked. And he goes up on the hillside and waits to see what happens. Real loving guy. But in the meantime, what happens is, the king of Nineveh, as well as the people, repent. They, they tear their clothes. They realize that they've done God wrong, and they know they don't want to be destroyed. And it, basically, the story says, and we're getting the background story, where God looks on it and says, I'm going to relent. I'm not going to destroy them. And Jonah's looking at this going, this isn't right. This isn't right. Kill them. Kill them. They're our enemies. You know the rest of the story, if, if you've read it. But if you don't have the backstory and you have this prophet saying, in 40 days you're going to be destroyed and it doesn't happen, that's not an accurate prophecy, is it? Does that make Jonah a false prophet? Does it make him inaccurate? No. It's simply there's a backstory that gets written into the equation. Now, that's not the only two instances, but I'm giving those as illustrations so that we understand the difference between someone making a mistake, growing in a gifting, I mean... Look at me standing up here. I'm 62 years old, and I'm telling you, I'm already making enough mistakes. When I first came into the area of service as a pastor teacher, I thought I knew it all. Black and white. I know everything. Now I realize I know a lot more that I don't know than I do know. And I'm always making mistakes. The issue, I think, sometimes for us, and even back then, as we're reading the scripture is that everyone's fallible and has to have a place to grow. I mean, when you were first hired in your job as a professional out of college for you that are young, were you expected to know everything, how to do everything? Were you not given a, a, a place to learn and to grow and make mistakes? Maybe you weren't. Maybe they fired you. I don't know. But the point being that within God's people, we all, with our giftings and callings, have to have an area to grow with and to learn how to be more in tune with God's presence and with his spirit. 
This works the same in prophets and prophecy as it does for pastors and teachers, for evangelists, for when you do gifts of giving, when you're just helping people. Just think about that. Give, give that some place. There are no functional saviors in the men and women who lead and guide. There's only one savior, and that's Jesus who's perfect. Let me say that again. There are no functional saviors in any man or woman. They're fallible. We are fallible. And not giving place to fallibility can lead to an idealism that just crushes and destroys not only you because of your disappointments, but can crush the leaders of which you happen to be under. And I think that's an important distinction, guys, And as it is here in Scripture. So... Let's look at some of the history of, of uh, the development of biblical prophecy in the prophetic office. We see here Abraham, along with like Enoch and, and Job, as being when the Spirit of God would come, they would prophesy, they would speak. And then finally you have this ultimate when it came into Moses in a sense. Moses would be, uh, would be, would be considered a prophetic leader of over two million people or so, a million and a half depending on your count. And then we see as Moses dies and Joshua takes over, we see the period of judges when prophets would go throughout the land warning them that they needed to obey God, come back to God so that they could take the land that God had given them. And then we see as they move out of the period of judges into the times of Samuel that literally there were schools of prophets throughout all of Israel. I think there was about seven or eight towns where these universities for prophets was going on similar to our seminaries now that do, you know, pastors and teachers. So, not unusual. And then in the period of the kings, you would have different prophets at different times, as I mentioned, Nathan and David here. But also, as we had kings, every king, there was some prophet or groups of prophets that would speak to them, whether to encourage them in doing right or to warn them when they were doing wrong and leading the people into idolatry. And finally, as we read the the books of prophets in the Old Testament, literary prophets like Amos and Hosea, where actually they were actually saying that they were writing down on a scroll. It wasn't somebody else doing it. It was literally them writing it. Let's go to the next slide if we could. And then we see here also the poetical form of prophecy, which would be poetry, prose, when you, whenever you're reading your Bible, by the way, and you're reading a, prophet, a prophecy from these prophets, and the lettering changes in your, in your Bible, you may not know this, some of you do, some of you may not be aware of it, but it's literally jumping into a poetry or, or a song, and, and it's just literally being expressed. Also, we see uh, in music, I'm going to read a verse out of 1 Chronicles, and if you want to turn to it, you can. It's 1 Chronicles 25 of how prophecy worked through music. It doesn't really tell us what it looked like, but it just tells that it did happen. First Chronicles 25, it says, Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for service some of the sons of Asaph, who should prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals, and the number of the skilled men performing their service. Interesting. Now, obviously, we didn't have any cymbals and harps up here. But you musicians that are in here know that the Spirit of the Lord can come and just through music, there's a spirit of prophecy that goes on. Now, what does that look like? It can look like a lot of things. We don't know what it looks like. 
But let me go on. So of the sons of Asaph, these sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied according to the order of the king. And of Jedthuthun and the sons of him, and I'm not going to read all the sons here, there were six of them, who were under the direction of their father, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. Music, wonderful form, poetry. So there's not just this very narrow form of how prophets and prophecy worked. It was expanded. It was large. It could come in different forms and in various ways. Let's look at the next slide. Oh, I'm sorry. Go back to the other slide. I'm sorry. So let me just finish this this historical development here. And again, these are all bullet points, and I'm kind of going through this for time's sake. But we see the prophets of Judah, Isaiah, and others through to Jeremiah that warned about this big exile going that the, the God, because of his people's disobedience to him, were literally sent away to Babylon and that this exile was going to come. And then we see this exile. We see Ezekiel and Daniel prophesying during this time. And then when the people were returned after 70 years back into the land of Israel to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, we see the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and then finally Malachi, Uh, in this process. And so for a period of about 400 years, recorded prophecy is not going on, even though there were probably prophets at the time that spoke to the different exiles. We see the next recorded biblical prophecy, especially under the Old Testament, being John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, the one who who was speaking about the coming Messiah being here and that he's going to come on the land. And then we see throughout Scripture prophets in the New Testament like Agabus, Peter, uh, Silas, and others, and how that worked out. So there's just a basic overview. And again, I want you to hopefully do some study. So let's look at the next slide. And we see finally, again, in pointing to Jesus, the prophet and prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. Because as Revelation 19.10 says, Uh, John, who uh, was one of the apostles, happens to be the prophet that is writing down this book of Revelation. He says very clearly, for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. And that is really crucial. Because we see Jesus in the form of being a prophet, and he is prophet, priest, and king. It's one of his titles. That We see Jesus revealing unseen actions. Like the woman at the well. You're familiar with that story. They're talking and he reveals to her, I know about your six other husbands. Wow, that blows her mind. Immediately gets her attention as to who this is. And then we see Jesus uh, or Philip under the fig tree. When Philip comes to him, Jesus says, Philip, I saw you underneath the sycamore tree. And Philip is blown away because he's really like, "Eh, how can you be the Messiah? You're from Nazareth. Nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth like saying nothing good ever comes out from Guadalupe or something like that. I, I, I'm not being, I, it's just funny. But we, we have these lenses that we, that we see through when people, where they come from, who they're associated with. And, and Jesus just blows Philip's mind and says, Philip, you're a man without guile. In other words, you're not hypocritical. You speak your mind. I like that. He goes, how do you know me? And he goes, well, Philip, I saw you underneath the fig tree before you were here. And Philip goes, whoa, how did you know that? You must be the Messiah. Notice, it points to himself. 
And then we see Jesus telling of future events, the destruction of Jerusalem, the future persecution and restoration of Israel, and end-time events that have not yet occurred. So we see the perfected fulfillment in Jesus. Now, I think it's... just want to move on. How you guys doing? You guys tracking with this? I know this is a lot of info, a lot of scriptures, but I'm hoping this, this is settling in and will generate. Let me look at how much time I've got. Good, 11.22. I'll try to buzz through this. Let's look at the next slides there. And I want to just read this quickly. Basically, within the scripture, we see three groups of prophets. We see those who spoke God's word, which was God's mind and heart to people then, and also for all periods of time, and are authoritative scripture for all of us to bring comfort, encouragement, warning, teaching, and training how to live in God and before others. And that would be characterized by a few of these names here, Isaiah, Daniel, Amos, John. That's one group of prophets that wrote authoritative scripture. Let's look at the second group. Those who spoke God's word to those of their time period and then are recorded in scripture. God's mind and heart right then for individuals and groups, warnings and encouragement sometimes confirmed by miracles and signs. So we see Elijah, Elijah, and in this case we're, we're looking at Agabus. The third group of prophets would be this. Those whom we read about in the Bible, but the words that God spoke through them are not recorded. They're simply a normal part of the fabric of society of disciples. And I mentioned the school of prophets in the Old Testament, and in this case, Philip's four daughters. We don't, it's not recorded what they said, but it's simply pointing out that this is a normal part of the fabric of the society of believers. Now, three objections to whether or not this is for today. And, and again, I'm not going to fully answer all these questions. Hopefully this will generate more. <laughs> but one objection would be to, there's a fear about exaltation of individuals that we need to de-emphasize titles, and we don't want to exalt an individual, or the excesses that come with mistakes. On the other side of it, we see excesses where everybody has to have a title and an anointing and needs to be recognized. Scriptural writers, objectively, scriptural writers simply named individuals and their particular function as servants of God's people, while glorifying God and Jesus and his works through the individuals. Plain and simple. There's the middle ground, and that's important. Number two, is this for today? I'll give a couple of thoughts as reading a couple of scriptures. I'm not going to answer that. Again, I'm trying to stay away from subjectivity this morning, as you can tell. Three, I think, is an important aspect that goes in this. We read the story of Agabus here where he actually gives a word of authority and people respond and do it. Now, that's problematic for us. And I think one reason that is is because we're looking at through the lens of our own experience because, remember, back then there was only one church. There was only one group of believers. There weren't 
different streams, different denominations. It was one church. And so the ability for apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers, they were known among the community of men and women and were approved by that process. Today, remember after the the Reformation time of the 1500s, which really produced, I mean, in this city alone, there's probably, I don't know, what would you say, 200 different churches in this city, maybe even more, with different pastors and teachers and different individuals who you don't even know. I mean, would you give your heart and mind to them and say, I'm going to follow whatever you say? Of course not. Of course not. So there's a problematic problem, a problematic problem. That's really stupid to say that. That's really a problem for us because in this day and age, there are millions of streams of the body of Christ, different expressions of himself through different people all around the world. And so I think that magnifies the issue of who has authority to speak God's word and how and why. Now, it's a little easier with pastors and teachers because supposedly they've got a piece of paper from a university or some kind of seminary or approval by a certain group of people that says this man or this woman is qualified to teach and preach. It's a little harder when we're looking at prophets and apostles. Evangelists, I think almost in the Western world there might be a common agreement. Billy Graham was an evangelist, no doubt about it. A lot more differences of other people, wouldn't there be? So think about that as part of this issue, and how do you get around that? Again, not going to take the time to look into it. Maybe I'm raising more questions for you than answers. Hopefully this is stirring your heart. So with the time I've got, which is 11, almost 11.30, and we're going to end here, the question really needs to be for us as we're thinking about it, where do we go from here and how do we proceed? I hope that this has generated a hunger to learn more about God's supernatural ways and how us as a group of people here, but also as individuals, can be taught by the Lord how to grow in this area through more teaching and supernatural visitation, that we literally give God plenty of room to move in our lives individually and in our midst. So I think a good scripture to end this would be out of 1 Timothy. This is going to be our last scripture that we look at which is 1 Timothy, he he gives two particular instructions. And this is really towards the end of Paul's life. And he's speaking to his his spiritual son, Timothy, who he raised in the faith. And Timothy at this point is probably still about maybe 30 years old, pretty young man. And he says in two places, first in 1 Timothy 1.18, he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, which is the prophecies, you may fight the battle well. Well, that's an interesting statement. At some point, prophets or whomever prophesied over Timothy certain blessings, certain foretelling, certain future events, and Paul is calling to Timothy to remind him that you take those things and recall them and fight the battle well through these prophecies. Let's look at the next verse in in 4.14. He tells Timothy in this passage, he says, Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Wow. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, Timothy, fan into flame this gift. It was given to you through a prophetic word when the body of elders laid their hands on you to bless you as a leader. 
Now, to the point of whether or not gifts and manifestations of the supernatural stopped with Scripture and with the, when the apostles, the, the 11 apostles, died out. If this is true for Timothy, who's 30 years old, he probably outlived almost all the, the apostles, which means he probably carried this on by example through Paul and others that prayed for him and prophesied over him, carried it through to other believers as well because we do really follow those who mentor us. Isn't that right? Well, that's just a thought. Also, by going into church history and looking at different writers throughout the history of the church, we really see the opposite more than we do the cessation of that. So I'm throwing this out objectively that you examine and think about this because I know some of you in this room have experienced this. Others of you may have not and are really leery about this whole thing. But remember something. We form opinions based on our experiences many times, don't we? Or the lack of them we form opinions on. This is why I've spent the time this morning to look objectively at the scriptures and simply let them say what they say, as well as hopefully generating a desire for more of God's, as I said a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not being cute, the revivision of God, where we see him clearly, we see his face, we see the face of Jesus, we receive these gifts from God that Jesus has given to us. And we walk within the natural framework of that, how that works out. So, let's pray. Father, you know, we're just fallible human beings in front of you right now. We, we want to know you, and yet sometimes some of the things of who you are really frighten us, really make us skittish because it's outside of our natural minds, our thinking. But Lord, you're a supernatural God. You, you, you break into the natural. You break into the natural rhythm of our lives. You move upon us. You, bo- you made us born again, which was totally a spiritual experience. So Lord, I'm just simply asking that you would generate a hunger and a desire for the things of you that are in truth, done decently in order, according to your scriptural words, but at the same time, Lord, that we don't try to order you and how things are supposed to go. Father, we want to walk in your hand, with our hands in your hand, where you want to lead us. And we pray that you would teach us and that you would also give us revelation of who you are in very powerful ways that would cause us to be more like you and to be know your ways. We love you.